you would turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look at and expound and explore the, the beauty and the glory that is our Lord Jesus Christ as he's found for us in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Here in 11 through 14 of chapter 9, the preacher, when I say that, I'm referring to the author of the epistle because this was a brief word of exhortation. Thirteen chapters, but considered a brief word of exhortation. It's considered by most to be a sermon. You want to learn how to preach, men. This is how you learn how to preach. You take up the book of Hebrews. Hebrews pedagogically teaches us how to preach. It, it teaches us how to read the Bible. You want to become a good Bible reader? You want to understand how all the parts fit the whole? Then master, or be mastered rather, by the book of Hebrews. Be mastered by this book as it's written to an exiled people who are contemplating abandoning Jesus and going back to the shadows of the old covenant. But now the, the preacher turns here in 11 through 14 from the limited effectiveness of the old covenant to the new covenant, to the, to the good things that have now come in Jesus Christ. That Christ, our great high priest, has entered into the heavenly sanctuary, the eternal sanctuary, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, as the writer says, as the preacher says, into heaven itself, not by the means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by the means of his own blood. Jesus Christ, God of God, of the same substance with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, took to himself our humanity, shared in our humanity with a nature like ours, fitted with a body like ours, that he might be our substitute. That vicariously he might secure so great a salvation. Not the labors of our hands nor our own blood, but by the blood of Jesus Christ he has secured so great a salvation, that we have this eternal redemption, that we can serve him now with, with a clean conscience. And do you know what Satan fears more than anything else? One of them, anyway. A man washed in the blood whose conscience is clean. Clean by the word of God, by the blood of the Lamb. He's fearless. For what can man do to him? Sure, they can kill him. Oh, to be killed. To die is gain, says the man of God, who's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. To be present with the Lord. You see, we've been cleansed that we might serve the Lamb with all joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's look now to God's Holy Word, chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. He's just spoken of the shadow of the Old Covenant, how it wasn't effective to cleanse the conscience, but notice how he begins here in verse 11 with that beautiful word in the word of God. 
We love this word, don't we, church? Don't you love this word? This is God's word. It's three letters. The most powerful word, oftentimes, in the word of God. But, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tabernacle or tent, that is a tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, that is Christ, entered once for all time into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, that is, consecrate or set apart for the purification of the flesh, that is, that which is external and outward and bodily, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, capital E, eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify or make clean our conscience, that is, that which is internal, the heart, from dead works to serve or to minister to the living God. Grass will wither, flowers fade, and we die. But the Word of God is eternal, powerful, living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Cutting us up, wounding us, that he might heal us and mend us in the gospel and in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come in our weakness. We come in our vileness. We come as those profane, those who are wicked in thought, word, and deed, who were born in sin, love sin, rejoice in sin, seek satisfaction in sin, but for a season. But, Lord, you've called us out of sin in Jesus Christ in saving union with the last Adam, the truer Israel. You've washed us in the blood. You've justified us by faith alone in Christ alone. And you're sanctifying us now, progressively, under the word, conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus as we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, as we're growing in grace, we're growing up and learning how to be childlike. For the greatest among us must be servant of all. Lord, help us to be low. Help me to decrease that you might increase. Take my poor efforts, multiply them, and feed your people this day for the glory of the Lamb, the beautiful Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I've been reading about the cross.
And I want to apologize that I have not made more of the cross. I've not reveled, I've not boasted in the cross the way I should. I have not been an example to you as a minister of just the beauty and the power of the cross of the Son of God. This week I read the following quote, and I want to read it to you. The Lord's plan for dealing with sin is shocking in its unexpectedness. It will not involve involve force of some military champion imposing righteousness on the people. Rather, the Lord's solution to sin is for his servant to take human sin on himself and to offer himself as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of others. You see, it is this, this message of the cross the world considers folly and weak and foolish and is oftentimes a stumbling stone. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Beloved, nowhere is God's power more clearly seen with 2020 vision than at the cross of Jesus, where the blood flowed for the forgiveness of sin. If you skin through the Trinity hymnal before you, if I were to encourage you to take that exercise to do such a thing, to skim through the hymnal, you'll find a, a myriad of hymns that sing of being washed in the blood, being saved by the blood, even going so far to say and rejoicing in the fact that there's a, a fountain. There's a fountain filled with blood. Saints, you you really can't understand biblical Christianity apart from the shedding of blood. To many of today's critics of Christianity, this seems bizarre. It seems barbaric. Where else do you go where you constantly speak of blood? You might go to the hospital. You might Fear the taking of your own blood, like I do. Turn my head, I don't want to watch. Get lightheaded. But to many of our critics, it's barbaric, it's folly. A false teacher by the name of Shelby Spong calls for a reformation within Christendom. He's since died and has since met God. For you see, it's appointed unto men to die once and then face the judgment. He calls for us to jettison all talk about blood. He says, I would choose to loathe rather than worship a deity who required the the sacrifice of his son. You see, people who share Mr. Spong's view don't make much of the passage before us this morning. And maybe you don't. Maybe here this morning and what I'm saying is, is boring to you. It's boring because you don't know your sin. You don't know the depth of your depravity. And you don't know the holiness of God. 
and you don't know the the depth and the height and the width of the love of God that gave the Son to secure so great a salvation for you. But the text before us this morning exalts in the blood of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished. So let's look at it under these two simple headings. The superiority of Christ's blood. What makes it better? Why is Christ's blood better than the blood of bulls and goats? Why couldn't the blood of bulls and goats suffice? Why do you need perfect, sinless human blood? And secondly, the purpose of Christ's blood. What does it do? So why do you need it? And, and what does it do? What can it cleanse? What can it wash away? What can it make whole? So first, the superiority of Christ's blood. What makes it better? We've seen over and over again in the book of Hebrews that the preacher, the author, has set out to show the, the superiority of Christ to all that came before him by way of contrast. He's shown us that Jesus is superior to the angels. Right? We've seen this. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of Aaron. We've also seen the superiority of the, the heavenly tabernacle to the earthly. We saw that in chapter 8. But all of these contrasts are, are set out to show us how Jesus is better. If you, if you want three words to give you the essence of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than all that preceded him. That with his coming as our high priest, the good things foreshadowed in the old covenant have now arrived. They've come to fruition. They've come to fulfillment. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Well, those last days began with the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's now spoken. He no longer speaks through picture books and shadows and types. He, he now speaks to us through his only son, Jesus Christ. You see, this time of reformation has begun that he alluded to there in verse 10. And saints, unlike the high priest in the old covenant, who once a year entered the Holy of Holies, not without blood for both himself and for the people, Jesus, as our high priest, we're told here as the captain of our salvation, has gone through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle that Jesus entered does not belong to this creation, meaning it wasn't manufactured by men. Now, it's replicated in the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly tabernacle, that's the, the archetype, was replicated with all that God revealed to Moses, and he constructed it there in the wilderness. And the people of God, through the, the types and the shadows, through the picture book, worshiped God looking forward 
to the one through which all of these things foreshadowed as types, as Christ is the antitype, the fulfillment of all that it foreshadowed. It's not of this creation, the writer says. It's not made with human hands. As we saw in chapter 8, verse 5, the earthly tabernacle was simply a picture of God's ultimate dwelling in heaven. Yes, it had a glory, but do you remember the glory of the old covenant? Paul compares the glories. He juxtaposes the glory of the old covenant with the glory of the new covenant there in 2 Corinthians. Yes, it had a glory. It served a purpose. Whatever God ordains serves his purpose, right? He doesn't have any junk, but its purpose has run its course. Its glory was fading. Just like Moses' face would fade after he had been away from the tent of meeting with God. And he covered it up so that people wouldn't see the fading of the glory. And Paul makes the parallel saying that the old covenant now is now fading. The writer to the Hebrews says it's, it's now obsolete. It no longer has warrant. Its shelf life has run its course. It's out of date now that Christ has come. The more glorious and perfect tabernacle has now been accessed in these last days through the cross of Christ. And did you notice whose blood the king brought into this heavenly eternal sanctuary? It was not the blood of a reluctant bull or a goat. Church, it was not even the blood of an angel. Beloved, Jesus came victorious into heaven by the means of his own perfect, human, spotless, unblemished blood. He entered by the means of his own blood. Verse 14, he offered himself without blemish. You see, the sacrificial animals in the old covenant were required to be without blemish. Without physical defect. You couldn't send a a goat in there who only had three legs. God doesn't want what's second best. He wants all that you have. Not measured by how much it is in worldly measurements and calculus, but how much of you is in the gift. You see, God wants all of you. That's why the woman who gave just a little mite, all that she had, she gave, gave more than everyone else. Because she said, Jesus is mine and I'm his. Nothing else matters. Well, here, no doubt, the the preacher has in mind the the morally unblemished holy blood of Christ, the, the one who was tested in every way as we are yet without sin while remaining pure and unblemished. You see, beloved, Christ, who for the joy set before him, willingly surrendered his perfect life. He willingly surrendered his perfect thought life. Think about that, man. He never had a lustful thought. Never. His perfect and faithful, obedient, law-keeping life he gave in the sinner's stead. All for the sake of his people. All for the sake of his bride. All for the sake of you, his bride, his people. 
The preacher goes on in verse 14, Christ offered his precious blood, notice what it says there, through the eternal spirit. This word authored, offered rather, is used throughout Exodus and Leviticus to, to designate the offerings that the priests would give. It has cultic Jewish understanding that the priest would give the bull. He would offer it. And here is Christ, the picture, offering himself, giving himself for his people. You see, Christ voluntarily gave the best thing he could possibly give. And what was that he gave of himself? John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 17 to 18, this is why my father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He laid it down for his friends. No greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners... While we were vile, we were exchanging the truth of God for a lie, suppressing it in unrighteousness, serving and worship the creature rather than the creator's forever best. God gave the Son. God gave the most precious prize of all of heaven. He gave his only begotten Son. Well, how did Jesus do this? How did he give up his blood for these people? Where did Christ the man, you see, he's fully man. Where did he find the strength to give up and offer his life? Notice what it says there in verse 14. Christ offered his blood through the eternal spirit. Well, pointing to Christ's divine status as the Son of God, I believe the author here, and the more I read the, the New Covenant, the more I read the New Testament... I'm starting to understand the, the true humanity of Jesus Christ. It's vital that Jesus be truly man. Not just truly God, yes, he's the God-man. And I believe the author here wants us to understand that Christ as Messiah, as David's son, fulfilled his calling to offer up himself for his people as, as one empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. He carried out his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same way he calls us to carry out our ministries in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we find him praying, often early in the morning, in the desolate place where no one else is around, seeking his Father, asking for the empowerment, Father, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me, Father. Use me depending upon the Holy Spirit to fulfill his calling as the last Adam. You see, he was strengthened by the Spirit to give himself as a, as a sacrifice for sin. Through the eternal Spirit, he, he offered up himself for his people. You see, church, the Trinitarian nature of salvation here, do you not see this? The beauty of it, the love of God the Father gave the Son... The Son in His love for you gave Himself. And the Holy Spirit in His love for the Father and the Son fulfilled His calling in empowering the Son to give His life. It's all of God. He's the hero. He's the glory. He's the lifter of our head. 
This is why we cry, not unto us, not unto us, but to thy name be the glory, because of thy love and thy faithfulness. Oh, God, there's no God like you. Oh, there's none like you, oh, God. You're big and you're glorious and you're beautiful and you humbled yourself, taking the form of a servant, becoming a man, that you might suffer and die and live the life that we failed to live and, and die the death that we deserve to die. Who is this God? Who has been his counselor? Who has been his advisor? Let him speak. I will listen. Who is God? The triune God. Well, secondly, notice the the purpose of Christ's blood. Not only its superiority, but notice the purpose. What does it do? You sing about it. What does it do? What can it do? What did God the Father ordain it to do? I want us to think about this in three dimensions. Or, or three aspects. The past, the present, and the future. What does it do with your past? What does the blood do with your past? What can the blood do for you today as you live the Christian life? And then lastly, can, can the blood keep you Is the blood strong enough to keep you until the last day into all eternity? Singing, being lost in the wonder and the glory and the praise and the beauty and the majesty of holiness that's found in Jesus Christ. First, our past. What can the blood do with your past? And we're sketch. You don't look sketch. You look pretty clean. But you, you come from the same stock I come from. We go astray from the womb, the word of God says. We have cobra hearts. I know that's not very flattering. But when you go to the oncologist and you have stage four pancreatic cancer, you don't need flattery. You need a straight shooter. Somebody's going to give it to you straight. And the Word of God does that. With kindness and gentleness, He cuts us. He convicts us that He might heal us. With tenderness, mercy. What about your past? We're told in verse 12, Christ entered into the greater, more perfect tabernacle. Notice what it says, once for all. What he's doing here, now think about it. He's juxtaposing the old covenant, right, with those repeated sacrifices that had to be given daily, weekly, and particularly annually the Day of Atonement, right? How they were teaching the people. Is there anyone's blood who can cleanse my sin? Is there anyone who can identify with me? Is there anyone's blood who can wash away my guilt? All those regrets. 
Well, he's writing us and he's telling us and he's reminding us that Christ's blood shed once for all time has satisfied your sin's debt. And beloved, if today you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, you have been forgiven. You're being forgiven. And you're going to be forgiven. Forever. In 10,000 years, you will be no more forgiven than you are right now in this very moment, in this very hour. You can't be more justified than you are right now in Jesus Christ. There's no more bloodletting. There's no more blood required. Even the sacraments of the new covenant are, are bloodless, right? Passover, something must die. A substitute must die. Circumcision, the cutting away literally of the flesh, the foreskin of the male. There was bloodletting. But notice in the new covenant, there's no more the shedding of blood. Why is this? Why do not we have bloodletting? Because Christ died what? Once for all time. Baptism is now water that symbolizes the washing, the renewal of grace and regeneration, the washing of the blood of the Lamb. Coming under that fount. The sacraments. We have the, the signs and the seal, the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ. They don't become the body and the blood of Christ. Truly and spiritually, as our confession states, we partake of Christ in them by faith, but they don't change. The elements themselves don't change, but rather as the reformers would say, we're, we're taking into heaven. Our hearts feed on Christ as he's seated there in the heavenly sanctuary by virtue of his sacrificial life that was offered up once for all time for us, that we feed on him. You see, the false gods of this world, the, the gods that you unbelievers who sit before me are serving, they ask you for your son. In Christianity, God gives his. That's the difference. His blood makes the, the foulest sinner clean once for all. He promises in the new covenant in chapter 8, verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. He calls us this morning in Isaiah 1, 18. Come, let us reason together. Come. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You see, the reason we're not lost and the wonder and praise of this gospel is because it's veiled to us in the sense that we no longer see the, the depth of our sin and the provision of the blood of the Lamb. You see, the person who's acutely aware of the sins that have been forgiven and the volume and the magnitude of those sins will love much. To the degree that you understand your sin and to the degree you understand the provision of the Father and the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit will be the degree that your vocal cords will work and lost in singing wonder and praise to God. That's the correlation. That's the doxology. And it begins with the drama. What God has done. It begins with the doctrine. How it's applied, the truth told, which leads to doxology, which leads to discipleship. You see, we need to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to come and stir our hearts. Oh God, 
Awaken my heart anew, afresh, to, to taste and see and know that you are God. To know my sin. To know the cost that you incurred in, in giving Jesus Christ for my sin. What does the blood do for us regarding our present life, right? Our, our past is clean. He's cast our sins into the ocean and we, wear, and we bear it no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin. But what about the present? Last week we saw in verse 9 that all the animal sacrifices in the old covenant could not perfect the conscience. And now here in verse 13, we're told that all those sacrifices, all they could do was merely, notice what it says, merely sanctify the people outwardly. That is, sanctify the flesh. To live a a ceremonially righteous religious life. Meaning you could come back into the community. You no longer had to go outside the camp. You could come back in because it, it cleaned the, the flesh, the body, so to speak, ceremonially. In the same way as Nels read this morning in Numbers 19, that the, the ashes of a heifer could ceremonially remove the defilement of a person who had touched a dead body. You see, God is life. His eyes are too pure to look upon iniquity, to look upon sin, to look upon death. He can't come near it. So if you you touched an old body in the old covenant, you were to get outside the camp because you were unclean. And the way you would be cleaned was by the blood of a heifer. It would be shed and mixed with the the holy water and you'd be washed. But all it could do would bring you back into the community. You see, there was one thing the blood of a heifer could not do, and that was perfect and clean the heart of the worshiper. You see, the blood of animals could clean you up to come to church. It can make you look good and smell nice on Sunday morning. All your religious practices. But the blood of animals could not bring you into the Holy of Holies. It could do nothing to cleanse your conscience. But the blood of Christ is better. The the blood of the king, we're told in verse 14, can and does purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Jesus, church, listen, Jesus cleanses from the inside out. He sees the heart. And we're told that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth looking for a heart that's steadfast. A heart that will be obedient. A heart that will count all the costs, will count all dung, that it might have Christ. Do you really believe a, a blood of a goat? We can get over here at Maymont Park. If you killed it, can cleanse your heart? No, it points away from itself to the one, to the Lamb of God, who, who takes away what? The sin of the world. The Christ... And his blood is better. He cleanses from the inside out. The blood of animals could be applied to our flesh and body. The blood of Christ is applied spiritually to our wicked hearts. It can and does cleanse the conscience. From what? From dead works. What are the dead works here? Let's explore this just a little bit. 
These are sins of transgression, idolatry. This is the sin of seeking our own kingdom. Many of you this morning are seeking your own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Seeking to build your own name. Look at the Tower of Babel. We'll show God who we are. We'll make a name for ourselves. But I also believe here the preacher has in mind this as he speaks about these dead works. He has in mind everything we've ever done thinking that it would redeem our souls. Your quiet time. Your faithful attendance under the means of grace. All incredibly important, vital, integral to growing in grace. Everything we've ever said hoping it would turn away God's wrath. Somehow that your tears of repentance, you've cried enough tears. Somehow that can propitiate and satisfy the wrath of God against your sin. You had a religious conversion experience. And you're looking to it rather than to the God of the experience. Every religious act or sacrifice that we have made thinking it would cleanse our conscience. That are the, these are the dead works that the author is speaking of. They're all dead because they're devoid of Christ himself. Yes, they have a religious form. Doing religious things have a religious form. But they have not what? They don't have the spirit. They don't have the power of God. They're carnal in nature. So you go through and you check up all the, the right, right T's and you dot the right I's, but there's no reality because you don't know God. You have a form, but no power thereof. So when David speaks about, Lord, I have no good but you, it's like, I don't know what that means. You know why you don't know what that means? Because possibly you're not converted. Maybe you have a ceremonial religion. Maybe you have an outward religion. But you don't have the Son of God. You don't know Him. I did it. I grew up in the church. I did. I had a form. But there was no power. Until He struck my heart. Convicted me of sin. Showing me the beauty and the glory of his provision. Regenerating my heart, giving me faith to believe. You see, Christ's blood not only washes our past, relieving us of sin's burden and guilt. Notice Christ's blood also, notice what he says here. It dethrones sin and the dominion and reign of sin in our lives that with a clean conscience, we might serve the living God. Romans 6.14, For sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. There's a new sheriff in town in the heart of the believer. Does he sin? Yes, he sins. The man who says, I don't sin, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But you know what? What's true of the believer? Sin is no longer his master, no longer his Lord. He's been set free from the dominion, the tyranny of sin. So now when he sins, he's cut to the heart. 
by the Holy Spirit and repents. And those things that he wants to do, he he doesn't always do. And those things that he doesn't want to do, he, he sometimes does. And he gets to the end of Romans 7 and he says, Oh, wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Praise God and to Jesus Christ. And he goes into chapter 8 and he says, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see the truth and the beauty of the gospel? It's not just some truncated thing I did once and I walked an aisle. I sung in a, a, a campfire in the Shenandoah Valley at a campsite. No, it's revolutionary. Jesus comes and he makes everything new. That's why he says, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. It's not an addition. It's a a death and resurrection. Romans 6 continues, Therefore, because you're regenerated by the Spirit, because... Weak is the labors of your heart, and yet it still wants to please Jesus. It's thirst after Jesus because it's now fleshly in the new covenant. Paul says, Therefore, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you see what he's saying? Grace is now our teacher. Love wins in Jesus Christ. How can I sin against my God in this way? Like Joseph, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, grabbing him. And yet we can get on the front of a screen and go to some pornographic site without any qualms whatsoever. This should not be. We're instruments for righteousness. It's vital to remember that as believers, we're we're saved from sin's guilt and power. And notice we're also saved to something. Right? We're saved to serve the living God. From dead works to something. From sin to Christ. From Satan to Christ. From the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, You, church... You and Jesus Christ are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Revelations 1.6, Christ freed us from sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to our God. We're saved and washed in the blood of Christ to serve God. You see, saints, we cannot keep Christ merely to ourselves. We're not just religious consumers. Many of us are. We're consumers. We're not disciples. There's a difference. We're like bobbleheads. The bobbleheads have that big, fat head. They just bobble. It's all they do. But they don't serve. You've been saved from sin to serve God, to be a disciple of God to take the message of the gospel into the highways and the byways of the world that all the nations might know the Lord, he is God. That they might come and kiss the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved from the wrath of God that's going to come on the earth on the last day as we read in Psalm 98. 
the Lord is going to come and he's going to judge the nations with equity and justice. Will you be found in the Son of God on that last day? That's the question for you today. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Is your only hope Jesus Christ? I have no other good save thee, Jesus. You are the Lord my righteousness. You are my acceptance. You are my resume. You are my pedigree. You are my life, Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot keep Christ merely to ourselves as a holy club. We must let our light shine before men that they too might come to praise our Father who's in heaven. That's why the church is called the salt of the earth. That's why the church is the city on the hill. That's why I wish we could get rid of these stained glass windows and put clear windows in that the world, the unbelieving world, might see in its embryonic form the kingdom of God in power going forth. The saints love one another. The saints serve one another. Not just consumers, but disciples. Where are you serving, church? Where are you serving? You sit in the pew, but where are you serving? Christ in the kingdom. Every year, I'm amazed. We have to claw and scratch to get people to serve in the nursery. Why is this? We're washed, redeemed to serve. The cleansing we have in Christ's blood is not the end. It's just the beginning. We're redeemed to serve him and one another in a dying world with the gospel of Christ. We're called to serve God by serving a world that despises the gospel, just like you did before God opened your heart in grace. And they might kill you for it. They might kill you for sharing it. They might scorn and scoff at you. Church, we're priests who've been called with the holy calling, called in service in the kingdom of our Father, a service born of gratitude for a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. How can we not sing about the blood? How can we keep silent about the blood of Jesus? if we understand what God has done in Jesus Christ. Past, present, lastly, future. So your guilt's paid. Your conscience is clean. Not to be a consumer, but to be a disciple, to serve. What about your future? Will the blood of Jesus finish the deal? Will it get you all the way home? Will that blood's power and efficacy ever expire. Notice what he says in 12b. By means of his own blood, Christ secured a temporary redemption. Is that what it says? Church, what's it say? Eternal. Eternal, never ending. Never fading. Not like grass, not like flowers, not like flesh. Eternal redemption. We have a never-ending redemption. Christ has paid the ransom. He's paid it in full once for all times. So I conclude with this. Today, have you done business with God? I'm not talking about religious purification 
right? I'm not talking about religious rites, the externals. I'm talking about the cleansing of the heart. You see, until you're internally cleansed by the blood of Christ, there's no service. There's only a fearful expectation of judgment. That's what awaits you outside of Christ. You need to be fearful. It's an awesome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Word of God says He's a consuming fire. Are you in the ark of safety? Jesus Christ. The biblical order is cleansing, then service. That's the way the gospel works from the inside out. So when we be found singing this day, oh, how precious is the blood. How precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. May God give us grace to sing his praise today and to all eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the efficacy and the power that is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute, that his blood can make the foulest clean. And we were foul, we were without hope, we were without God, but you, God, who being rich in mercy, when we were objects of wrath, suppressing truth, loving unrighteousness, called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, help us to grow up to become more childlike that we might enter the kingdom For unless one comes like a child, he cannot come. Teach us, Lord Jesus, through what you did in your example and what you procured in your faithful obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.